them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let him let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. As some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. That was good, wasn't it? Amen. That's a great story in the Bible. But recently the Lord was speaking to me and asking me just about, uh, I guess, just my personal vision for uh, why are you in the ministry? What is your personal vision for church? And, um, you know, it was just a, you know, a question like God wasn't looking for information, but he was really trying to remind me of why I'm here. And why, what I really believe in. And this is why I'm here. I'm here for what it said. Jesus was in the house. Uh, and New American Standard says he was at home. Actually had a home. A lot of people don't really know that. But um, I believe the most important thing there is is the presence of the Lord. And that's the reason, you know, I really wanted to be in the ministry full time. Is because of the presence of the Lord. And that's what I've always wanted out of church. If I could just have that one thing, uh, is God's felt presence in the church. Uh, to me, that was, that's all I'm looking for. Uh, not, not everything else that you do in church, but, you know, those are all good things. But um, just the presence of the Lord was, is what's most important in my heart when it really comes right down to it. Uh, I can remember when I was a little boy... Uh, less than five years old, I don't know exactly how old, uh, I literally worshipped my daddy. He was the greatest thing there was. Uh, I can remember this, and I have a few memories of my early childhood. Uh, my dad had a second shift job at the time, and I can remember him leaving to go to work and, and me just, just begging him not to leave because I just wanted to be with him so much. And he would uh, take me... And put me in the car with him and drive me from the backyard to the front yard. And just so I could just be with him. Uh, and that's really when I felt God calling me to ministry. That was really what it was all about. I mean, I, I really just wanted to be with God. That was really what I desired. That, you know, sort of, that's sort of an immature, naive thought because you can be with God anywhere. But I just wanted to hang around with God. And just be in His presence and do what He was doing, you know, get and share, uh, you know, in what He was doing. And that's what I really wanted for church. Now, I haven't always been true to that. I don't feel like, you know, you just, you know, you go through life just like I wasn't true, you know, to my dad. In life, I became rebellious, you know, towards him and didn't really have that passion towards him. 
But uh, I want to just speak to you briefly this morning, uh, this message. What happens when Jesus comes to church? Okay, what happens when Jesus comes to church? If Jesus showed up in the church this morning, what would really happen? And I think this story tells you, it says in verse 1, it was heard that he was in the house. What would happen if Jesus really came into the house? And there's several things in here that I just want to go, and I'm not going to try to read the whole thing again, and just share with you things that I believe would happen if Jesus came here. Um, Number one, the first thing it says in verse 2, he preached the word to them. Uh, And I believe that's, that's one thing that would always happen when Jesus comes into his house, is that the Word of God is going to be something that's, that's going to be spoken either by preaching or teaching and prophetic utterance or whatever. In some ways, God's going to speak his Word to us. Now, listen to this. Okay, listen to what I'm telling you, because I know a lot of people... Uh, in the church, uh, don't esteem the Bible, don't esteem preaching enough, and there's some people who esteem it too much. But here's, this is, listen to what Paul said. I'm just going to read this, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 4 and 5. He says, My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, a demonstration of the Spirit and power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The Spirit and of power, the Spirit indicates the presence of the Lord. That's what it indicates there in that verse. It indicates the manifest presence of the Lord. And, of course, the power there indicates the works of God. So what Paul was saying is my preaching and teaching uh, does not depend on natural wisdom. It depends on God's presence being there, God's presence being released, and God doing what only God can do through miracles, etc. I felt like when the Lord brought me to Morrisville that my job was to get people into the presence of God. That's what I really felt like the Lord told me I was supposed to do, is to get people into the presence of God, and then God would take care of people. In other words, it was not my job to fix everybody, to make sure everybody was okay. My job was simply to help people find God, discover God, and discover the very presence of God, and He would fix them. He would meet their needs. And I still believe that. Again, I, don't, I haven't always hung true with that. But I believe that God wants an upgrade my preaching and my teaching. And I think this is the upgrade, 1 Corinthians 2, 4, and 5. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and the power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I believe the church needs uh, preaching and teaching that manifest and release the presence and the power of God to people. Amen? That's the first thing that I believe will happen when Jesus comes to the church. The preaching and teaching will change. Just like, just like T.D. Jakes, I heard him say one time, when Jesus stands up to speak, everybody else is going to sit down and be quiet. And that's really what the, the church desperately needs today. We need to hear from Jesus. And I believe if He comes, He'll speak to us. Amen? The second thing, there's a diverse crowd. Okay? Uh, it, in other words, the church, the, the church will not be a uniform church. See, we like uniformity. Look at the, the rows in this room. The row, just turn around and look at the rows of the church. Everything's uniform. Go to my backyard and look at the row of trees that I planted in my backyard. They're as straight as an arrow. 
But look in the woods over there and see how God plants trees and see all the different varieties of trees. There's nothing uniform about what God does. God's not uniform like that. But in this story, we find people who are very sincere people that loved God and believed in God. And we also find people who were skeptics. They were insincere people. All through the Bible, you find people of all types that were drawn to Jesus. Mostly troubled people, crazy people, demon-possessed people. Yet the church wants everybody to behave in a certain way, act a certain way, and look a certain way. And I'm here to tell you, if Jesus shows up in the church, he's going to bust our little box that we've tried to put God in and tried to put the people of God in. God wants room for diversity. And when I mean diversity, I don't mean diversity like the world says. I mean God wants a place where people can go, come no matter what they look like and no matter what, how they act. And the church has become intolerant of people. If we don't act a certain way, if we don't look a certain way, we have a tendency to push them out. Jesus taught in Mark eleven seventeen. He said, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. For all people, but yet you've made it a den of robbers. In other words, they were hindering people from coming in because the people that were trying to come in, maybe they didn't have the money. You know, there were money changers there, and they didn't have money. It's poor people couldn't come in and worship God. And it's just not, not the Lord. Only the in crown, only those who meet our standards for fellowship, for Christianity can fellowship here. Do you see what I'm saying? You see that mindset we've fallen into? Jesus will bust that mindset very quickly, I believe. The third thing that's going to happen when Jesus shows up in the church, there's going to be an atmosphere of faith and expectancy. An atmosphere of faith and expectancy. These guys believed enough that God was going to do something. That they were willing to tear the roof off in the rented house that Jesus was living in. Because they believed that if they could get this person down to Jesus, Jesus would heal them. There was an expectancy. There was faith in God's house. And when Jesus comes, because Jesus is speaking His words, it's going to release an expectancy and a faith, and there's going to be things that will happen because of that. It's not going to be people coming to church to go through the motions, sing a few songs, hear a message, and go home. That's not faith and expectancy. They've come to meet God. They've come to see God do a miracle in their life. They've come to get healed. They've come to get changed. They've come to hear from God. And we need to... Well... We need, but I'm saying when Jesus comes into the house, that's what's going to happen. Is it, are, you, are you feeling convicted this morning? <laughs> I am. I really am. All right, here's the fourth thing that's going to happen. This is one of my most favorite parts. There was a graceful atmosphere. A graceful atmosphere. Okay? Listen, Jesus did not run the skeptics off. He had skeptics there, and he did not run them off. He challenged them. He spoke to their skepticism, but he did not reject the skeptics. Jesus did not get mad at those guys for interrupting his message when they lowered this guy down the ceiling. You know what we would do if somebody come and interrupt our service? For a legitimate thing, we would say, no, you've got to wait. We've got a ministry time and a special time. You know, you go sit down and be quiet. And that's what we would do. That is not what Jesus did. You hear what I'm saying to you? There was a graceful atmosphere. He didn't scold those men for tearing up the roof of the rented house that he was in, and he was going to be responsible for getting it fixed. He didn't fuss at them. If somebody came and tore our roof up, we would be, we'd probably sue them. You know? 
So Jesus was very flexible. There's a book called this. By, it's an old book. It's been around a few years. called What's So Amazing by, About Grace. Anybody ever read that book? Raise your hand if you ever read it. What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey. As a matter of fact, it was the last book that my dad read before he died, and it changed his life. Because my dad was a very hardcore guy, stuck in his ways. You know, if you didn't meet these standards, you didn't get it. And he read that book, and it caused him to be a man full of grace. But the book starts out like this. There's a, there was a prostitute. This is a true story, talking to the author of the book. And she was so bad that she had actually prostituted her little girl, young girl. And she's told the guy, the reason I'm doing it is she can make more money in one night than I can make all week. And of course, he was sort of like, oh, man, I've got to report this because it's child abuse, blah, blah, blah. And, and he said to her, have you ever gone to a church to get help? And she looked at him, and her face got all twisted up. And she said, if I go there, they'll just make me feel worse. They'll just make me feel worse. Very convicting statement. What would we do with a person like that? What would we do with a person like that? You hear what I'm saying to you? That is not a great... We were, in other words, this woman was saying, from her perspective, the churches are not a very graceful place. Not a very graceful place. Um, you know the story in John 8 of the woman who was called in adultery? Y'all know that story? The woman was called in adultery. The, the, the religious crowd drugged the woman to Jesus for him to judge and, of course, the Lord didn't judge her. But one thing that is not told in the Bible that you could only find if you studied the historical things and customs of that time is when a woman was caught in adultery during Jesus' time and brought before the rulers, her top was stripped off. She went topless before to, to add humiliation to her. I think it's interesting that when Jesus addressed this woman, he did not address that issue at all. In other words, if, if that happened in our society, it would be the first thing we would go after is we would go after the outward appearance of a person. Uh, this is what God has spoken to me over and over. Why are you trying to change people from the outside in? Why are you trying to change people from the outside in? Jesus did not try to change that woman from the outside by telling her to put a shirt on or trying to cover her up. He tried to change her heart. He went after her heart. God looks at our heart. And we, look, we tend to look at the outward. I had this experience recently. Um, where I was invited to go up to uh, a Young Life camp. Ever since I've been a Christian, I have heard nothing but negative things about Young Life. And a young man who has some sort of interest in my daughter, who thought it was in his best interest to win my approval of what he was doing, invited me to come and see what he was doing, because he works for Young Life. So, and I told him I was quite skeptical about uh, the Young Life ministry because of all the negative things I have heard about Young Life. So we went to this camp, and it's like a camp for teenagers. Now, understand, these teenagers are not Christian teenagers. First thing we're faced with is they have a pool right in the middle of the camp. And we go out here and look at this pool, and the girls have Band-Aids for bathing suits on. Okay? Band-Aids. That's how skimpy their bathing suits are. Well, the first thing I think is they need to do something about this. What is wrong with them? These girls are too skimpy out here. The lifeguard, who was a young man, a junior in college, I believe, said to me, his biggest job is not saving people from drowning, but keeping the kids off in each other. My religious heart was just completely uh, buffooned by, the, you know, why would they allow this, this thing to happen? So uh, I knew God, well, God started dealing with me about my attitude. Because, see, my first 
response was want to, to change these children, change these young, these are not even Christians, but make them put some clothes on to cover themselves because they were showing too much of their skin. That was my first response, having no concern whatsoever for their heart condition because you can cover them all day with clothes, but if their heart's not changed, you know what's going to happen to them. So we went into their, their service and the man stood up to preach, and he began to preach to him, and he started saying crazy stuff to him like this. It's not a matter of you how many times you sleep with your girlfriend or if you smoke or drink. That's not the issue. The issue is really can you do this or not? It's who's in control of your life? Who's in control of your heart? And he made a quote of a... Some philosopher said that this, there was a famous philosopher that was asked this question, what's wrong with the world? And the philosopher said, I am what's wrong with the world. And when he said that, I realized what God was saying to me, Byron, what is wrong with the church? I'm what's wrong with the church. That very attitude that I had towards these unsaved people, towards a, an organization that all it was trying to do was reach these people for Christ, reach them. It wasn't trying to put clothes on them. It was trying to bring them into a personal relationship with Christ. Now, they may have problems. I'm sure they do. But what I want to say to you this morning, that is a more graceful atmosphere than what we find in the church towards people. Do you hear what I'm saying to you? God is looking for a graceful attitude, a graceful heart in us. He's looking for something that we don't judge the outward appearance, that we don't hold people at bay because they don't meet our personal standards. They don't act like us. They don't talk like us. They act stupid. They act weird. They're, they're sinful. And we have built a church. And I'm not saying necessarily anybody in this room. I'm saying what's wrong with the church? Me. We build a church. We build an organization that's exclusive in a sense and excludes people. And you go through the Bible, you go through the Gospels, and you will not find that in the Gospels. You will find it with the religious crowd, but you will not find it with Jesus Christ. What's wrong with the church? I'm what's wrong, Lord. I am. I can't say it's Matthew. I can't say it's Ron Howard. I can say it's me. I'm what's wrong, Lord. I can have truly come to that point where I'm saying I'm what's wrong. It's people like me because we've created this. Are y'all with me? That's, that's the fourth thing. The fifth thing I believe you'll find when Jesus comes to church is healing. Jesus heals. Amen? Jesus heals. I recently began to do this thing. I got this great ideal that I select from God about finding out about Jesus. Finding about who Jesus was who he hung around with, what he liked, what he didn't like, just studying his personality and studying what he did. You know, the Bible's full of that. But one thing I discovered, actually this is a verse that really got me thinking about this, is, and it really stuck to me, and you don't have to turn there, is Matthew 4.23. It says, Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogue, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases among the people. So he was teaching the people, he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and he was healing people. That's what Jesus did. And that's what he was doing that day when he showed up that day in the house. He was teaching, he was preaching, and he was healing. He was healing. 
And I was asking the Lord, Lord, you know, should we really go after this healing thing? And this is what the Lord said to me. Why wouldn't you go after it? Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? That's what He said to me. Why wouldn't you? Because that's what He does. And I believe a church that Jesus shows up at will do that. That's what will happen. They'll be preaching. They'll be teaching. They'll be healing. There'll be an atmosphere of grace. There'll be an atmosphere of expectancy. There'll be a diverse group of people. There'll be some maniacs. There'll be some crazy people. There'll be some sick people. There'll be some smart people. There'll be some skeptics. But the Lord never rejected not one of them. Now, He did reject the religious attitude, but He never, ever, ever, ever rejected the Pharisee. He rejected what they stood for. And this is a little statement the Lord's given me. The Pharisee in me. When I look in the mirror, I see a Pharisee. That's what I see. I see a Pharisee. I don't see Jesus. I see there's a real Pharisee in my flesh. You hear what I'm saying to you? In my flesh, I'm a Pharisee. And I want to say this to you. I believe in all of our flesh. We're Pharisees. All of us are. Because it's not a matter of becoming something special or something good. It's a matter of letting the life of Christ come forth in us. Do you hear what I'm saying to you? Now, here's the question you should ask. Those are just five things. Isn't that exciting? I mean, yeah. All we need is to get Jesus here, right? That's the question. That's what I'm saying. Lord, how do we get you here? That's the real question we should all ask is, okay, Lord, this is what happens when you come to church. So how do we get you in the church? You know, because we can't do it. Well, you know, you could say lots of things. Of course Jesus is in the church. He's in every one of us. He's in our life. We can apply this to our personal self. You know, Lord, why am I not? Why am I such a Pharisee? Well, if you're living inside of me, it's because I'm not allowing him to come forth. You know, I'm living by the flesh. There's lots of things, but I just wanted to focus on this one thing. Turn to Psalm 27, and let me just read this. This is the question. How do you get Jesus to come to church? This is what we're asking. This is what I'm asking. Okay, um, I think the first thing, the first thing we have to do to get Jesus to come to church is, uh, as you turn there, I'll just quote uh, James 4, 6 to you. It says, He gives more grace. Therefore, He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I believe humility is a key. Okay, I believe humility is a key. That we have to humble ourselves to the Lord. We have to recognize how desperately, how desperate we are and how needy we are of Jesus. See, we're not, we, I want to say, I'm not desperate enough. I'm not needy enough. I've got too many props I can depend on, okay? Things I can depend on, trusting in something other than Him. Do you hear what I'm saying to you? We want Jesus in the church. We've got to become empty. We've got to become poor. We've got to recognize that's what we truly are. We've got to realize, Lord, it's not such a bad thing to be wretched, naked, poor, and blind. It's a good thing. It's a good way. I want to, I want to be naked. I want to be like the woman in, in, in John 8 with my, with my top ripped off and my breast exposed to the world in a very humiliated position, needing, needing this Jesus. I want you to make me see how needy I am of you. That's what humility is, that we see we need Him. And we don't trust in anything else because God will resist us. He resists the proud. If you think you have something else, He's going to resist that. Whatever else it is, He's going to resist that. But if you will humble yourself to the Lord and say, I am very needy, Lord. 
Oh, sure, yes, Calvary Community Church has a nice building. It's a brick building. That's, that's nothing. Are we depending on those things? Or can we say, Lord, if you don't show up, we're going to die. We're going to die if you don't come here. That's what God wants. And if we really have that attitude, if we say, God, if you don't come, we're not going to make it. We're going to fall down. We're going to die. If we really had that attitude, you'd think He wouldn't come. He would bust through on us. Because we were humble and we said we were depending on you. We're not depending on anything else. We need you, Lord. That's the heart that God wants to release to us. It's called trusting God. And leaning on God, depending on God. And then grace comes. Then faith comes. Then the diverse crowd comes. The person who walks in the door who may not look the way you want them to look. The person who's full of sin or whatever, full of, you know, full of religion. You don't reject them. You receive them. You don't go try to change them from the outside. You minister God to their hearts. We wonder why 80%, up to 80%, of Christian kids, when they graduate from high school, fall away from the Lord. You know why they do? Because we've worked on the outside so much that we forgot about their hearts. John Maxwell says this, you know, about giving. You can get, if you get a person's heart, you can get their pocketbook. You hear what I'm saying? This is a classic example. A month or so ago, we had a bunch of children to come up here in this church, show some pictures of some kids down in South America, Talked about getting them, raising some money to give them candy and balloons to take to them. That was a wonderful thing. Touched people's hearts. Got some money out of it. The next week, our children's ministry comes over here and says, Well, the tape duplicator back there is crummy. It's noisy, and we want to buy a CD duplicator and get rid of tapes, you know, cassette tapes yesterday's news. Let's get into the modern technology. Do you think that we got much money when we took that offering up for that? No, we didn't. You know why we didn't? Because we didn't touch anybody's heart. They just thought, oh, man, it's just a CD player. You know, yeah, great CD player. Let's give some money to some kids that don't have candy and don't have toys and balloons. You see what I'm saying? See, God, and it's just a, that's why you've got to be careful of these CV commercials. You know, they show starving kids and they want you to send them money. And you don't realize 99, 99 cents out of every dollar you send them stays right here in the organization. It doesn't go to the kid. They give them a penny off a dollar or something ridiculous like that. You have to be careful. But fundraisers know this. They know get their hearts. And you've got their pocketbooks. You've got their mind. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? That's a spiritual principle. And God is looking to capture people's hearts. Let's quit trying to change people from the outside and go after their hearts. Because that's what's only truly going to have an effect on their life. So... Anyways, I somehow got off the humility. But let's read this, uh, Psalm 27, verse 4. One through, uh, verse 4, Psalm 27, verse 4 through 6. This is a, a Psalm of David. He said this, One thing I have desired of the Lord. One thing I have desired of the Lord. That will I seek. That's pretty convicting right there. What are you seeking? Are you seeking that one thing? Or are you seeking other things? You know, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. In other words, that I may be in the place that God's in. That's, that's what David said. That's where I want to be. I want to be where God is. That's a tremendous desire. Okay? And that, thing, that word uh, desire there, 
It means, to, in, in, it's the sort of a double thing they did there. That I, one thing that I have desired, that I will seek, this sort of double word, but really what it means, it means to earnestly pursue after. I will earnestly pursue after this one thing. Uh, all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord. And, you know, we've gotten this stuff about the beauty of the Lord so whack that nobody can understand it. You know, I, you know, you hear some of this teaching out there about the beauty of the Lord. I mean, it's like, dang, I don't know, this is too complicated for my little head. I just want to be in your presence, Lord. I just want to get it down to that. I just want to be with you. Just like when I, I just want to get back to when I was that little boy with my daddy. I just want to be with my daddy. And when he's leaving, I want to get, let me get in the car with you and ride from the backyard to the front yard. That was a gift. That was a gift from God. I don't think any of my kids ever did that. Aaron used to run to the window when I'd come home. I'd see him in the window, jumping up and down, excited. If I could just get him to do that now. <laughs> now he just sort of grunts at me. Mm. You know how guys go, hmm. That's what we do. We just grunt at each other. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, to behold the beauty of the Lord and the choir in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. See, there's this great benefit to all this. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. And let me just say this. This is a gift from God to desire this. It's not something you earn. It's not something you work up. If you don't have it, it's because you don't have this gift in you, but this desire in you. And, but I believe in every human being, deep down in us, there is a sincere desire for God that God has placed in us. This hunger, this hole in our hearts to be in the Lord's presence. And I feel like, you know, the Pharisee in me has led me away from that. Okay, that's what it led me away from. But I feel like the Lord is bringing me back. What's the most important thing, Byron? It's your presence, Lord. And you see, His power comes with His presence. You hear what I'm saying to you? So it's not a matter of us getting whipped into line. It's not a matter of us, you know, forcing ourselves to accept people and love people the way they are. It's really a matter of us just humbling ourselves to the Lord and saying stuff like this to the Lord. Well, Lord, you know, I really don't desire your presence. I really wanted to go out there when I saw those girls in the bikini and fuck.